I'm Jamie O'Kane, CPA, Small Business Advanced Tax Planning and Compliance Extraordinaire. And this is the Abundant Beans Podcast, the podcast that takes my love for learning what makes people tick while digging into the good, bad, and ugly of small business ownership. We strive to give you the insight that only those in the trenches of being and working with entrepreneurs can provide. We'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Josh Weissman. Weissman. I should have asked you first. No worries. Got it. Um, Josh is a positive psychology practitioner and co-founder of Flourish Veterinary Consulting, which is a really long URL. <laughs> it is. I was typing it in today and I was like, wow. Yeah. Um, he served the veterinary industry since 1998 in roles ranging from technician to practice manager to hospital owner. Pulling from a variety of postgraduate certifications and masters in applied positive psychology, Josh utilizes keynote speaking, workshops, consulting, and coaching services to help veterinary professionals and organizations thrive. Thank you so much for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah. I have a lot of questions for you. Awesome sauce. Um, so what was your first job? My first job? Ooh, that brings me back. So when I was 15... And I still had to be driven to work. I worked at a Rocky Rococo's Pizza. <laughs> Are you familiar with Rocky no, Rococo's where Pizza? No, where is that? Yeah, so this was in Wisconsin. Oh, so okay. I, I think it was like a Midwest-only chain. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Uh, and so we did full pizzas, but we also did like sliced pizzas. Mm -hmm. And so I was the guy that kind of did like the expoing, cutting up the pies and boxing the slices to put into the little window thing that, you know, that the people could go and sell to whoever was coming in. And my favorite part about that job was two things. Number one, we had these like, I don't know what, some sort of metal pan that mm -hmm. we would like make the cheese bread in. Uh -huh. And they were a nonstick pan. You would put it through the pizza oven, like the little conveyor uh -huh. thing, right? So I would say, screw the bread. And I would just throw a pile of cheese on it <laughs> and then put that through. And that would be like my snack, like, you know, a cheese cracker, basically. <laughs> cheese crisp. Like. Yeah, yeah, cheese crisp, exactly. So that it. was awesome. And then the second thing was at the end of the night, you could be strategic about the slice. Like they had like a system for how many slices you're supposed to make and have stocked at, mm -hmm. you know, particular hours of the evening. But you could be strategic about it and make sure that, you know, there might be a couple extra slices by the end of the night. So, you know, I'm a 15, 16 year old kid, right? Uh, so I made sure that there were extra slices and then either they got thrown out or somebody took them home. So free pizza. So free pizza. Yeah. At 15 years old, you're like, I'm going to strategically this oh, yeah. thing oh, and yeah. figure out how yeah, to get yeah. free pizza. Yeah, for sure. Oh, it was great. When I waited tables, mm -hmm. one of my favorite things was when like somebody would send something back, back like untouched. Yeah. Because then you'd be like, yes, it's mine. So I worked, I worked in restaurants for a while, and I worked with a guy for a bit who he didn't even care if it was touched. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't finish your food Ew. and he was your server, some of it was getting eaten in the kitchen. That's really bad. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Oh, man. He survived. Probably has a very strong immune yeah, system. Yeah, that's a very strong immune system. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> My favorite was when the when the, um, when the guys were like, the kitchen line guys were always like flipping their spatulas and it would land on the ground and they just yeah, pick it up. And, and pick it up and just keep going. Uh -huh. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a long time ago. Restaurant to not be named. Right. <laughs> um, so you've had many roles in the veterinarian space. Um, tell us about your journey. Yeah, so uh, so I moved out to Colorado in the mid-90s, and um, I got a job at a PetSmart in Boulder, mm -hmm. and I was working in the specialty department there, uh, so, you know, selling fish and things like that. And we had, in that particular PetSmart, we had a PetSmart Veterinary Services, mm -hmm. which doesn't exist anymore. 
Uh, but it used to be that PetSmarts around the country, if they had a vet hospital, it was a PVS, a PetSmart Veterinary Services. And so there was a PVS there. And uh, the, the guy, the, the chief of staff there, uh, still a friend to this day, Dr. Donald Davidson Dodge III. <laughs> Triple D the third. Yeah, third in the line of Triple Ds in his That's family. Hilarious. Amazing. Uh, six foot seven. Oh about gosh. as skinny as that pen over there on that table. Wore a bolo tie to work. <laughs> of course he Just did. like a goofy, goofy, happy dude. I, I really adored Dr. Dodge. Uh, so, you know, I was, I was a young kid, 18, 19 years old, and mm-hmm. trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I thought maybe I'd want to go to vet school someday. So I waltzed over to the PetSmart and I said, hey, Donald, thinking I might want to go to vet school. I should probably get some experience in a vet hospital. Can I volunteer here? Mm-hmm. And he said, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that, but I'll hire you. And so within a few weeks, I transferred from the store to the vet hospital, and he trained me to basically be a vet tech or a tech assistant. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got my start in the field is uh, having no experience whatsoever, not really knowing Just being like, hey. my Yeah, and Triple D and uh, Dr. Hanley, who's also still a friend of these days, um, were the two doctors there. And they taught me how to tech along with the other techs there, and I worked there for several years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then, then where did where did you go? What was your progression? Yeah, so so after a while, so we, we had a pretty close knit group there, and it it was a lot of fun. The job was great. Um, PetSmart ended up selling the PVS brand mm-hmm. to a company that at that name was called VetSmart. VetSmart is now Banfield. Mm-hmm. So uh, VetSmart rebranded to Banfield. They bought all of these you know, PBSs around the country and things really changed a lot. And, you know, I, I wasn't really glued to the place in particular. And Dr. Dodge was sort of looking for the, the, the stimulus to go off on his own and start mm-hmm. his own vet hospital anyway. So he left and I left and kind of parted ways. And I ended up bouncing around in a few different areas and ended up in another vet hospital in the area working as a tech. And then um, I wasn't making enough money, which is still a theme to these days yes, uh, for veterinary theme. technicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A very underpaid uh, demographic as a general population. And uh, so I got a part-time job at a bowling alley. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I uh, Fridays, I would wake up at, you know, I don't know, 5.30, 6 in the morning. I'd drive down to the vet hospital. I'd work my 10 or 12-hour shift. I'd drive up to the bowling alley. I'd change out of my scrub top into a t-shirt. And then I'd work till 2 in the morning at the bowling alley. Oh, wow. So I'm working at this bowling alley, and uh, a few months into this gig, the owner of the bowling alley is like, I don't know how much money you make in this vet thing, but I'd really love for you to come and be my assistant manager here. What would it take? And this just goes to show how good I am at negotiating. (laughs) Uh, And I said, I don't know. What are you offering? And he said, how about $28,000 a year? And I said, how about 30? And he said, sure. And I went, fuck. Uh, Should have asked for thirty five. Yeah. So um, yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah. So I took that job and I left the vet field mm-hmm. and I started managing this bowling alley. And uh, actually, it was it was a lot of fun. Oh, I it was it was in many ways one of the most favorite jobs I had. Oh wow. Uh, you know, we had roughly fifteen hundred league bowlers. Oh wow, that's a lot of bowlers. And some of these people would bowl two, three, four leagues a week year round. So like you get to know these people really, really well. 
And year over year over year. And so, I mean, it felt like a giant family. And then the people I worked with were a lot of fun. And he taught me kind of everything around the bowling alley. I ended up learning, you know, how to do the pro shop thing so I could like measure people's hands and drill bowling balls. And I learned a little bit of the machinery. And so I helped the mechanics and I would work the bar and I was helping with some marketing stuff. And Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun. So I was there for quite some time. But uh, it was a challenging job. Um, the, The owner and general manager was we'll just say very different than me. And uh, one day, um, things came to a head and I ended up getting fired from said bowling alley. Oh no. uh, Which is a story in and of itself. Uh, Yeah, so uh, here I am, unemployed. I dropped out of school for this too. I was in college and I was was working at this place and there were, you know, there was some talk about him starting up a second bowling center and maybe I'd be a partner there and the general manager and all these opportunities. And I just dedicated everything. To this. I literally was in this place probably 65 or 70 hours a week. In wow. a bowling, I was a bowling alley rat. Uh, and uh, despite all that, For I never really got year. that good at bowling. <laughs> I think that's terrible. That's one of those things that like you can do genetically or you can't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> clearly I don't have the bowling gene. That's right. Um, which is a little disappointing, but anyway, yeah. So I got fired from that place. And so now I'm a college dropout and I'm recently unemployed. Uh, and, um, oh, and, and had been dating a girl for about a month at this point in time. So she encouraged <laughs> me to kind of go back to school and to look for some work. And, um, I ended up working in a hotel for a little while while I was going through school. But then when I got done with that, now things had gotten serious with her. We're now engaged. And uh, she works a regular day job and I'm working nights at a hotel. That's not going to work. So I had to find a day job while I figured out what I was going to do next. And lo and behold, a vet hospital in Boulder was hiring a vet tech. There you go. So that's how I got back in the field. And I started working there uh, in about six, eight months into that job, probably about that amount of time. A vet hospital that I had worked at years prior was sold to two veterinarians and a vet tech. And I went, that's interesting. That's interesting. I could buy Did a little Googling. <laughs> I can buy a practice. Yeah, I had no idea. I, I mean, I just assumed you're a doctor, you own a vet hospital. If you're not a doctor, you don't mm-hmm. or you can't. Mm-hmm. And it turns out you can. Mm-hmm. So uh, I literally I did the waltz again over into the doctor's office, sat down next to one of my favorite docs and said, hey, you want to buy a vet hospital with me? And she said, Sure, I've always wanted to own a vet hospital. And I said, great. And I don't think she really thought I was serious. <laughs> Until she had I a mean, vet hospital. I mean, I'm a hospital. tech making like 10 bucks an hour, right? <laughs> Until she had a vet hospital, right? Yeah, six months later, we bought a vet hospital. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so great. Uh, so myself and her and another another veterinarian, and that's mm-hmm. how I got into uh, management and ownership. So wow. you know, I started taking all these courses and uh, reading books and finding folks in management, you know, and talking to them and finding a couple people in the area mm-hmm. who were non-DBM owners as well and talking to them about their experiences. And yeah, we bought a hospital in South Boulder. Wow. Uh, so that was right around 2009. Do you still have the hospital? Mm-mm, no. So have- yeah, so we bought this practice and um, we were, I was there for five-ish years, mm-hmm. right around five years, maybe a little more. Uh, and it was great. Like, you know, I felt like I was really good at it. We were really good at it as a team. We took this practice. It was a one doctor hospital. It had three years of consecutive decline in revenue. Mm. Uh, and we tripled its revenue in about three and a half years time. Wow. That's crazy. I uh, grew up from a one doctor practice to a four doctor hospital and, you know, things were going great and it, it, it was a lot of fun and I felt like I was really good at it and I wanted more. I got a little greedy, <laughs> so I wanted more. Uh, so I started looking for other opportunities for ownership. Mm-hmm. 
and my partners were not interested in multi-hospital ownership, mm -hmm. and, and that's fine. Uh, you know, they wanted to do what they wanted to do, and I had different dreams and aspirations at that point in time, so we amicably parted ways. Mm -hmm. And I sold my equity uh, and took that money and looked for other opportunities. I'd made some friends in the industry th uh, during that experience, and uh, I'd found this guy uh, who, you know, who I developed a good friendship with, who was buying like what we call no low practices mm. or you know no profit or low profit hospitals with you know, poor cash flow. He was teaching in the schools as well, and so he would get to know these veterinary students uh, who had entrepreneurial aspirations. And uh, they would uh, get together and they would say, okay, great, you wanna buy a hospital, where? Let's find one that's really struggling. Mm -hmm. I'll help you buy it, I'll help you you know, manage it while you learn the ropes of being a practitioner okay. and then I'll teach you the business side and we'll tr you know, I'll sell my equity to you in a few years time and it'll be your hospital. I said, I want in on that. Yeah, so, that sounds like yeah. fun. So we started looking for other opportunities. Uh, we found a hospital up in Cheyenne. Huh? Uh, that was a good opportunity and we started negotiating with them. Very, very dysfunctional ownership team, really, really poor hospital culture. Mm -hmm. uh, so that made it a great opportunity, but it also made it really difficult to negotiate with. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and there were a lot of stumbles and many, many mm -hmm. months of we're almost there, we're not there. We're almost there, we're not there at all. Then we got hooked up with a startup consolidating group. Uh, this group, they'd come from Europe, they'd made a bunch of money and like, road and bridge construction and stuff and random stuff way too young to retire but full of cash and so they'd come to the states looking for their next sort of you know business venture settled on the veterinary industry spent two or three years kind of researching the field and then decided it was time to pull the trigger they wanted to buy veterinary practices and create a consolidating group oh wow they got in touch with us we all sat down and met. We decided that we would go into a partnership together and buy this hospital in Cheyenne. Now all of a sudden, what's a negotiation becomes a cash acquisition. Oh, wow. Yeah, cash speaks pretty loudly, and that made things they a lot got it together. smoother. Yeah, so we ended up buying this hospital together. Myself, my friend, this consolidating group. Oh, my gosh. They're based in San Francisco. My friend lives in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in Firestone, Colorado. I'm the Cheyenne. closest one, so I get to be the guy to be the on-site uh, yeah. you know, practice manager and help turn this practice around. So I started commuting to Cheyenne, Wyoming, 75 miles every single day. The wind blows really hard. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's crazy. I've never, I literally have seen semis on two uh -huh. wheels. Uh -huh. I mean, it's yeah, unbelievable. Two. And then I haven't actually seen them roll over, but I've seen them on the side of the mm -hmm. interstate. Yeah, in we have family in Cheyenne. Oh yeah, so yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, so I started doing that commute uh, every single day. Wake up at you know five in the morning, feed the dogs, feed the cat, feed the birds, feed the fish, feed the wife, feed myself, get in the car, drive 75 miles to work. Spend 10, 12, 14 hours. It was a seven day a week practice, extended oh, hours, wow. only one in the city, uh, and had a lot of problems, a lot yeah. of problems. And I was gonna come in and save the day. Yeah. Uh, How did so, that go? <laughs> not so well. Uh, so yeah, I, I made that commute and uh, worked, you know, my 60, 70, 80 hours a week and, uh, at, you know, on site and then whatever I was doing off site. And then my friend started a um, consulting company and I was kind of helping him with some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up becoming a consultant with mm -hmm. that company and doing some consulting work, the consolidating group. This was their first acquisition. They had aspirations for tons and tons of, you know, hospital purchases. And so 
I was helping them identify acquisition opportunities, perform some due diligence. Mm -hmm. I traveled to some of these places mm -hmm. and do some work either pre or post acquisition uh, with them. I joke with people, there's a, I think the math is 168 hours in a week, something like that. I was working about 200 of them. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so not at all a sustainable path. And uh, I made it about a year and a half before I literally found myself on a March morning in a blue sweater standing in front of eggs that I was scrambling, putting the ladle down, and then just like bursting out in uncontrollable tears. <laughs> just like, burned out. Yeah, completely and totally burned out. Crying my eyes out over scrambled eggs and having no idea why. Literally no idea why. My wife's like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? Did you hurt yourself? No, I, I literally have no I'm idea what's going done. on. I'm having a break. Yeah, yeah complete and total break. Uh, so yeah, so that, that was my journey through veterinary medicine. Oh my gosh. Uh, and then, yeah, shortly after that, I said, okay, I need to this is not okay. Mm -mm. Uh, and for me to really kind of figure out the best next path, I had to break away from everything. Mm -hmm. I needed to really clarify things. And so I left everything. I sold my equity. I left the consolidating group. I left the consulting group. I left my position as the practice manager. And I became a 39-year-old unemployed bum. <laughs> it was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Hung out with the animals all day. Hung out with the animals all day. Went back to school, started taking classes, reading, mm -hmm. doing some certifications online. Mm -hmm. And uh, it kind of hit me that, you know, the, the central theme through all of this was um, my passion for people. Mm-hmm and really helping uplift others, uh, really helping them unlock their positive potential, this concept of living an authentic life, and whether that means at home or at work, mm -hmm. uh, really kind of started to shine through for me. And, and then it hit me, you know, this is a problem throughout our industry. Uh, what I experience is a very, very small piece of it. Uh, and if it can happen to me, somebody who's, you know, kind of a natural optimist, mm -hmm. pretty gregarious and happy-go-lucky, it can happen to anybody. Uh, and so that's where Flourish came from. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So. How did you, so your current focus is on helping pro practices foster a positive environment. Yeah. So how do you define a positive environment? So a positive environment for me, that's a great question. Positive environment for me is an environment in which people can feel like they are doing fulfilling work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, fulfilling work means a lot of things. So I think it's helpful to start to clarify what isn't a positive environment. Mm -hmm. A positive environment is not kumbaya. Right? right. A positive environment is not everybody's opinion, you know, counts all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, a positive environment is not hand holding or back padding. Uh, you know, it's not about, um, you know, the sort of toxic or false positivity mm. uh, that you see a lot of um, kind of throughout the world. I think it's not about entitlement. A positive environment is about helping people fulfill their potential mm -hmm. and helping them really feel fulfilled by their work through a sense of meaningfulness. And sometimes that's really hard work. You know, sometimes meaningful work is really difficult. Mm -hmm. It can be really stressful, it can be really challenging. And that's no different in veterinary medicine. Some of the things that we encounter in vet med are really, really hard. Uh, emotionally difficult, sometimes morally difficult, mm -hmm. certainly uh, physically and psychologically difficult. But creating an environment that's focused on what's best in people, focused on uh, building up and leveraging those best components, focused on really helping people fulfill their potential, whether it be within that particular environment or elsewhere, mm -hmm. uh, is what I think is a, is a positive workplace. And there's a lot of science that backs that. Yeah. You know? So how, um, so I, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. I have yeah. some other questions leading up to that one. Great. So how does an organization usually decide to change their culture? Um, <laughs> and who has to have the buy-in on that? Yeah, that's a 
those are great questions. Um, I think organizations decide to change their culture probably in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. It's probably pretty unique from organization to organization. Um, I think sometimes, you know, maybe you get a bit of a mutiny, (laughs) right? Uh, You know, people are like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, Uh, we all hate you. (laughs) Yeah, we all hate you. This is not working, right? And sometimes that kind of forces it from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think sometimes you get a change in leadership and uh, maybe the new leadership sees the value and importance of uh, the workplace culture. Mm -hmm. And so they decide to implement that. Uh, You know, sometimes it's just a moment of inspiration. Sometimes, you know, for me, it was the experience that I had. I thought I was cultivating positive environments in the hospitals that I, you know, that I worked in and that I managed. Mm -hmm. And looking back on it, I really wasn't. I really wasn't doing a very good job of that at all. Uh, I needed to have that moment, that experience, Mm -hmm. to sort of have that awakening of, I, I was not creating that culture, not just for the people, but for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think sometimes it can be that too. As far as buy-in, you know, on on a sort of global cultural uh, perspective, uh, if you really want to change the culture of an entire organization, you mm-hmm. have to have buy-in from the top mm-hmm. and full and complete buy-in mm-hmm. from the top. Uh, if you don't, it's... It's not going to happen. You know, some folks in leadership positions sometimes look at these kind of positive cultural changes Mm -hmm. as um, a driver for the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is that when you have a positive culture, yes, it does positively impact the bottom line. Mm -hmm. But that's a result. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be an end goal. Mm -hmm. And some leaders sort of have that as the end goal in their mind Mm -hmm. under the the mask, the facade of positive cultural change. Caring about the people. Listen, human beings are really, really good at seeing through false. We're pretty intuitive. Yeah. If you're not authentic (laughs) in your desire for the culture, people are going to sense that really quickly and you're not going to have the results. In fact, you could have counterproductive results. Well, it's really disingenuous. Totally disingenuous. Yeah. And we sense that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah, I've uh, there's a couple of leaders that um, you know I've spent some time with that really talk about positive culture mm-hmm. and abundance over scarcity, and then they don't yeah. live it. Yes, and it becomes very, very apparent. Yep. very quickly. Yep, and then completely invalidates everything you've ever taught that person. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember the piece of research, and I'm I'm probably it's probably going to escape me, but there's some research that suggests that something like we place as human beings we place. Um, something like 12 times more value on people's behaviors and actions than their words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you can talk the talk all day long, but if you're not living it, it doesn't matter. Uh, so yeah, smell it. yeah. But that said, mm-hmm. within organizations, there are microcultures, mm-hmm. right? So even within a small veterinary hospital, and we can take like truly a small practice, two doctors, you know, maybe a tech team of six, mm-hmm. uh, two or three receptionists and a practice manager. Mm-hmm. There's microcultures within that practice. Mm-hmm. That tech team, that six veterinary technicians, they have their own microculture. And so even if the practice manager, or the owner, mm-hmm. maybe isn't so supportive of you know these kind of positive cultural, positive leadership uh, uh, perspectives, within that microculture, they can choose to still bring some of that to the workplace and help mm-hmm. enhance it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can still have a positive influence as sort of a foot soldier, yeah. uh, you know, if you can get a little bit of buy-in mm-hmm. in your own little team. But if you're gonna do the most effective work, it has it's gotta to come from the, from the top. top. Yep. So what are, so talk to us about some of those advantages of having a workplace that is focused on, on well-being. Yeah, so one of the most powerful ones that I like to talk about 
Um, there's a, an economist who just happens to be a, uh, I don't know, hobby social scientist, um, <laughs> neuroscientist. His name is Paul Zak. So um, Paul Zak, he comes at things from an economics perspective, mm -hmm. uh, but he studies things like neuropsychology and neuroscience. And he became really fascinated with the uh, neurotransmitter of oxytocin. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of oxytocin. Yeah, I'm a birth doula. I know all about, yeah, yeah, I know yeah, yeah. All about oxytocin. And for, for a long, long time, the assumption was that's really the only purpose that oxytocin served, right? Right, it was birth. Was, was birth. Mm -hmm. Actually, as it turns out, oxytocin is really a, a neurochemical of well-being, of psychological mm -hmm. well-being. Yep. So, for example, oxytocin fires up in trusting relationships. Mm -hmm. So when, when you and I have a positive interaction that results in a certain level of trust, mm -hmm. you get a boost of oxytocin and I get a boost of oxytocin. And the result of that is that it actually boosts our trustworthiness, mm -hmm. which creates a stronger relationship, right? Yeah. So in the workplace, it, it builds teamwork. Mm -hmm. When you have increases in oxytocin throughout you know, the bloodstream of the people in the workplace, teamwork enhances. And then they want to work better together as a team, mm -hmm. which further enhances teamwork, right? It's mm -hmm. this virtuous kind of upcycle, all from this tiny little chemical in our brains. Uh, so he studies oxytocin, <clears throat> and he spent roughly 10 years studying it. He developed a system, I, I think psychologists, or people who study these kinds of things are just fascinating human beings in and of themselves. <laughs> right, just to start with. Yeah, so he developed a system for measuring oxytocin in the blood real time. So think about that. At work, right? You're sitting at your computer. Hey, Jamie, I'm just going to Take a quick blood sample and measure your oxytocin real quick. No, no, just Finger keep please. working on your spreadsheet. Finger, please. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, how crazy is that? But he did it. And he got something like 75,000 data points. So, I mean, this is a really, really huge data set. And then he correlated it to a bunch of economic markers. And what he's shown is that within sort of all of the workplaces that he studied, there's mm -hmm. basically a bell curve mm -hmm. of, you know, sort of oxytocin levels. So there's, you know, the top 25% that have the highest levels of oxytocin within the teams. And then there's the bottom 25%, the two quartiles in between. Mm -hmm. What he has shown through his research is that an increase in just one quartile. Mm -hmm. So you could be the worst workplace on the planet from an oxytocin perspective and increase it to just the 25th percentile almost $11,000 in additional revenue per employee per year. It's crazy. That's the impact of a positive workplace culture. That's the impact of workplace well-being. I mean, it's huge amounts of money. So in veterinary medicine, which is where I always kind of fall back on because right, it's a lot of the work that I do. do. So the average veterinary hospital, we'll call it two doctors. Again, we'll go back to that, that small practice mm -hmm. we talked about a few minutes ago. So two doctors producing about 550,000, we'll call it $600,000 in revenue, mm -hmm. right? Per doctor, total staff of 12. We boost their oxytocin levels by a single quartile. Mm -hmm. We've doubled their profitability. We've doubled their, pro the average vet hospital has about a 10% profitability or 10% yeah, EBITDA, right? Yeah. yeah, we've doubled it just by boosting oxytocin in their workforce. That's right? crazy. It's amazing, yeah. There's, there's real money at the end of it. It's yeah. just, I just think it's the result of it. It's when it's the goal. Right. Well, how can I make more money by make, make, making people feel good? No, no, no. That we want to make work. people feel good. And then you will make and more money. And then you reap the benefit of yeah. that. Um, so what are the ways you help a practice build a positive environment? That's a great question. So um, a, a variety of different tools that we use. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of concepts that are, again, steeped in science, which is really cool. We're, so we pull from 
a lot of research. Uh, this is not, you know, kind of voodoo magic. No. Uh, this is not, not, you know, sort of BS stuff that we've made up. Uh, we pull from research from social sciences, applied positive psychology, neuropsychology, mm-hmm. organizational psychology, things of that nature, things that have actually been proven evidence-based to work in the workplace and work with human beings. And then we help organizations identify where are the gaps, where are the opportunities. Mm-hmm. What things can we implement and try? And we basically perform social experiments within the organization. Hey, here are a couple ideas that we think will have a positive impact within this culture. Let's try it Mm -hmm. and then test it three, six months down the road and see what kind of influence Mm -hmm. it's had. Are you doing oxytocin blood samples? Not quite. Dang it. (laughs) Unfortunately, Paul Zach hasn't shared that tool with me. (laughs) <laughs> no, but we, we we do use some sort of psychometric-based mm-hmm. tools, uh, assessment tools, surveys, yeah. things of that nature. Um, but then also interactional tools, right? There's a lot of one-on-one. There's a lot of uh, sort of, you know, leadership coaching, positive leadership coaching, uh executive style coaching, personal coaching uh, for not just the leadership within a particular practice, but really anybody who could benefit from that kind of coaching. Uh, so it's kind of this combination of sort of this discovery component, mm-hmm. you know, where we go and we look at what are we working with? What's actually working really well here? Because mm-hmm. there's always stuff that's working well, even in the worst environments, yeah, there's really always well. some strength. Yeah. And so identifying those and, and bringing those to light, because often we don't we don't even look at those things, Mm-mm. right? We're so focused on the shit that's broken right. that we forget to see the stuff that's working. That is so true. Yeah. I think that's true in any business. Oh, totally. So we want to help shine some light on those things that are working. Mm-hmm. And then how can we use those strengths to leverage against the areas of opportunity or the weaknesses or the things that we're maybe not doing so well? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we offer a whole bunch of tools to do that. And then we kind of help guide along the way. So that's kind of the the really extensive, you know, full-on 12, 24-month mm-hmm. consulting model. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of hand-holding, uh, a lot of guidance, a lot of sort of measure, test, remeasure, yeah. uh, and a lot of one-on-one. Yeah, really absolutely. Cool. So what are some of the biggest obstacles to creating a positive environment and yeah. veterinary practices? Yeah, that's that's an awesome question. <laughs> so many obstacles. Um, you the know, biggest ones. Yeah, so so I think the, the first one is just the human tendency towards a negativity bias, mm-hmm. which is not something that, that we can get rid of. Is we can't do anything about that. That's built into the part of our brain that evolved many, many millennia ago, right? Mm-hmm. We're never going to excise that. And the truth is, is we really shouldn't. Uh, you know, sometimes you meet somebody, you kind of get that funny feeling. There's a reason for that. And you don't want to eliminate that. Also, if you walk out on the street and, you know, you see a 5,000-pound truck barreling at you at 60 miles an hour. You have the danger response. Yeah, you should have the danger response to <laughs> jump out of the way. Yeah, so we don't want, we don't want to eliminate that. The problem with that is that that negativity bias is way, way stronger than our sort of positivity bias, if you will. Mm-hmm. The good news is that we can cultivate the positivity bias, just like we can go on a diet or start a new exercise regimen mm-hmm. to change our physiology and our psychology. We can do the same thing with this sort of leaning into the positive and recognizing that. Our brain is very malleable. Yeah, yeah our brain is very malleable. But it takes time mm-hmm. and it takes effort and it takes intention. And in the day-to-day, when you walk into the hospital, you're the practice manager, and you walk into the hospital, and two of your techs have called in sick, and three emergencies have just showed up in your front door, and the anesthesia machine is broken, and you know, you've got a leak in one of the bathrooms. Like It's really, really hard to be like, okay, I have to practice this instead of this 
to help support and lead this positive environment that I'm trying to, to lead. Mm -hmm. So I think just sort of that in and of itself is a big obstacle. The other obstacle, I mean, I'll be honest, is most people, you know, when they're going to looking for a consultant, mm -hmm. they're looking for somebody to impact the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And even though I can share some of that data, mm -hmm. I can't say if we change this in your hospital, you will make $100,000 more this year. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you that. Mm -mm. I know it. Mm -hmm. I know it in my heart that mm -hmm. those things will happen mm -hmm. over time. But you can't And there's it. so many case studies around it. But I can't go in like a regular operational consultant that can say, oh, wow, you know, the pricing structure on your surgical procedures is way off and you're actually losing money on it. If we just make this adjustment and this mm -hmm. tweak, boom, times X number of surgeries per month, you're going to make $75,000, mm -hmm. right? I can't do that. And so... It, you can do that, but that's not what you do. I can kind of do that. <laughs> I can't do it that, you know, yeah. with that sort of precision. Yeah. But uh, you're right. It's not what I do. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little bit tougher sell yeah. because of that. Oh. Also, there's a self-awareness component, right. you know. And if a culture within an organization is suffering, uh, it means that the people within the organization are not doing everything they can to alleviate that suffering. And that, that takes a little bit of looking in the mirror, and that can be really difficult for all of us. It was hard for me. Yeah, I think it is. It's hard for all of us yeah. to be like, oh, hey, I am the problem here. Or at least part of the problem. Right. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I do know, like, just <laughs> in my past that I've had some really bad managers as the people that I emulated. Yeah. And then... I got in trouble for emulating them, and yeah. then it was just a whole disaster area. Right. Um, and I do know what my tendencies are now, because I do know that I do things that aren't positive culture or aren't positive for our culture. So I'll be like, just call me out on these things. Yeah. Like, I know it's gonna happen. This yeah. is just how I was programmed. I'm trying to unprogram that. But if yeah. this happens, you have permission to call me out on it. That's awesome. And please do that, because That's great. you know I wanna be accountable right. for yeah. being yeah. a jackass. Yeah. There's an interesting uh, piece of research. Um, it was done just by survey. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, something, I think 19,000 respondents, something like that. So uh, they, they spoke to managers within all different organizations, mm -hmm. and they asked them to rank. If you had to guess, like employees that have recently left, mm -hmm. rank the reasons why you think they left, right? Mm -hmm. And then employees who had recently left a job, mm -hmm. rank the reasons why you actually left that job. Mm -hmm. So the managers, what do you think they ranked number one is why they thought people left Money. their workplace? Money. Yeah. It was number five on the employees list. Mm -hmm. Manager was number one. Yes. Manager was number one. Yeah. We've, also, we've seen that data. Yeah. And it's, it's very true. It's totally true. It's really true. I will say this, though. Most of us, the vast majority of us, and I believe this about all human beings, don't wake up in the morning thinking, gosh, I can't wait to get to work today and make things miserable for the people that work for me. Right. People just don't do that, right? No. That's not their intention. So I think a lot of times we don't even have the awareness that we're having that impact on the people around us mm -hmm. and that we're actually cultivating a counterproductive culture, that we're actually cultivating an environment different than what we intend. Mm -hmm. We just don't even realize it. And so that level of self-awareness, it just we may not even be aware that we need to have that level of self-awareness, you know? And so convincing people of something that they're totally unaware of, <laughs> I mean, that, that can be a challenge too. Unexperienced. Yeah, yeah. So give us a story or tell us a story of a practice that you helped foster a positive environment and how their practice has changed. Yeah. Um, so there's a hospital that we've been working with uh, for some time now. Um, and uh, when we when we joined that practice, it was 
a year or so um, after it had changed ownership. So the original uh, proprietor had started and owned the practice for, I don't know, 15, maybe 20 years, something like that, built it up into this really, really great, wonderful, successful hospital, um, six doctors on staff, five doctors on staff, something like that, and then sold it to one of the associates. And um, she bought the practice without really having any you know business management background, which is pretty typical mm-hmm. for our field. Seems common. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful human being. Really, really great person. Really genuinely cares about the people that work for her. Um, but also now has this, you know, burden and challenge and responsibility for this big business that she's purchased. And so she kind of dove in headfirst to like, you know, hitting the grindstone and just, I got to make revenue, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a great practice manager who also has a lot of wonderful, wonderful attributes. But through all of this change and all of this kind of focus on keeping things going, uh, you know, the culture started to suffer a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, totally unintentionally. Uh, to their credit, they recognized that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they started to look for ways that they can improve that. And they ended up bringing us in. And we went through this process. We we had a, a whole, you know, sort of survey period, and then we spent a week in the hospital. We sat down with every single person that works there and just talked to them about the experience in the workplace. You know, what do you like? What do you not like? Uh, you know, pretty standard stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And really got a really good image of, you know, from that sort of cultural perspective, from that psychological perspective, what what things are working well here and what things aren't. Uh, and then we, you know, created this big report and we presented it to the leadership team at the hospital and made a bunch of recommendations and started doing some leadership coaching with them and, uh, helping them implement some of the recommendations that they wanted Mm -hmm. to, to bring into the practice. And, um, we're actually just about to do our next remeasurement on, uh, sort of the workplace culture and the, the psychological well-being there. But, um, everything that we're hearing and seeing, I fully expect those scores to have gone up by, you know, double digits. Everybody's really happy Oh to my be gosh. There. It's like, it's a total change in the environment there. Complete and total change in the environment. And that practice there. manager probably sleeps better at night. Oh, everybody does. Yeah. Everybody does. It's, it's unbelievable. And they've hired two new doctors since then. Holy cow. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's really, it, it really does have an impact. I'll tell you an interesting story. There's a hospital in, in the Denver area that mm-hmm. we do some work with. We do this uh, measurement, mm-hmm. um, workplace well-being survey tool with them every six months or so. And the last two of them, uh, their scores have been between 20 and 25% higher than the national average. Oh, wow. uh, so like really like on paper from just a numerical perspective looks like a really, really good place to work. And so the last time I talked to the practice manager there about her scores, she was like, well, Josh, if if all these scores are so good, like, what do I work on? What do I do with this? And I'm like, first of all, celebrate it. Like, really, really great job that you're leading this environment that seems to really be fulfilling the people there. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Second of all, do you know what the unemployment rate is right now for veterinarians? It's like less than one and a half percent. It is a highly competitive market. Hospitals are sometimes going years with a constant ad up and they can't find a vet, right? Mm -hmm. Put this information in your ads. Like not only do we pay well and have the greatest benefits and good hours, but we can prove to you that this is actually a really good place to work. Much better than most other veterinary hospitals. Like that's a competitive advantage right, right. there, right? And then she'll be more busy because she's got more docs to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> that's what she does. Yeah. Yeah. That's what she needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And exactly. then she sleeps less then again. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you're a busy speaker. Um, you do a lot of keynotes. What are your favorite top topics to speak on? So there's there's one topic that I do that I have a lot of fun with. Um, I call it breaking happy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Um, it's, it's about sort of reconfiguring our mindset around what well-being really is and finding a more sustainable path. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our, our country is built on this foundation of the pursuit of happiness, which I think is a wonderful thing. And I'm certainly not advocating for, like, stop trying to be happy. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem is, is that our brain isn't built for constant happiness. And so uh, what the research pretty conclusively shows is that when, when the pursuit of happiness is the most important thing, when we have it on the top of the hierarchy, uh, it, we actually have a counter result. Uh, there's some some research that shows that folks who value the pursuit of happiness over say like the pursuit of meaningfulness or fulfillment uh, are something like have 75% more incidence of depressive symptoms uh, experience something like 35% more negative emotions so in trying to find that really great positive emotion they actually experience more negative emotions that's crazy yeah yeah uh, there's a really fascinating piece of research uh, done in the field of psychology and emotions research, but they actually attributed it to physiological changes as well. And what they found was uh, people who pursued happiness over um, things like meaning actually experienced a spike in um, uh, inflammatory markers in, in the bloodstream, similar to what you would find in people suffering from chronic illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis. Wow. So, so the researchers at the end of the paper basically say, so the pursuit of happiness is about as good for you as chronic illness. Uh, so, so yeah, so I have this, this keynote that I do on sort of like breaking down the problems with the pursuit of happiness and sort of offering a little bit of a healthier path and uh, with some evidence-based tools on how to yeah, do Yeah, I mean, that. what does happiness even mean, right? Does that mean I have three Escalades in a hot tub? Like, what does right. that look like? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, there's quite a bit of research around those kinds of things too, you know, it's very common for us to attribute happiness to um, a particular like achievement or a particular tangible item. Mm -hmm. uh, I call it the destination dilemma. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you set like, you know, if, if I graduate, then I'll be happy. If I get a job, then I'll be happy. If I get a promotion, then I'll be happy. If I buy that fancy new car, then I'll be happy. If I get the big house, then I'll be happy. And the exact problem with that, why I call it the dis destination dilemma, is that you have set an achievable destination. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you achieve it, right? You get a little bit of a dopamine spike, uh, that's it. and then you got to go find the next dopamine spike. So there's always something else to do. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a really fascinating survey done um, <clears throat> by a positive psychology researcher who I always mess up her last name, Sonia Lumiberski. Um, so she basically, she went and she talked to people who made on average about $25,000 a year and said, hey, how much money do you think you need to make to be truly happy? Mm -hmm. And on average, the response she got was about $50,000. If, if I could double my salary, I'd be, you know, I'd be truly happy. Mm -hmm. So then she went and she found people who made about 100K a year. Figuring, well, shit, if it doubles it to get to 50, it must like quadruple it to get to 100K, right? And they said, no, 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 Sonia. If I can make about $250,000 a year, then I think I'd be truly happy. Mm -hmm. So then she was like, okay, well, let me go look at like the people who just make crazy amounts of money. And she found people who made on average about a million dollars a year and asked them, how much money would you need to make to be truly happy? And on average, they said eh, about $3 million. So the point is, is that like once you, you achieve these things, you you adapt to it. Okay. We have this sort of adaptation system built into our neurophysiology and our psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you walk into a room that has a bit of an odor to it. At first you're like, oh, that's interesting. Three minutes later, 
you don't recognize it mm-hmm. anymore. That's, that's olfactory my, adaptation. That's why my son couldn't smell the cheese stick in his that we found in his room. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. There may, but we could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There may be one of those in my car. Actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> we found a cheese stick. Yeah, yeah. That's a great example. I'm going to use that example. You should. In my talk. That's why an Thank 11 you. year old yeah. doesn't smell the cheese stick oh, that's awesome. in his room. That's awesome. <laughs> we do not know how long it was in there. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm thinking back to when I was a teenager and maybe met, went more than a day without showering on occasion. Yeah, no. It's and, not optional yeah, in yeah. this house. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So yeah, it is bad. We have a friend who their 10-year-old, um, all summer they had to take him swimming because that was the only way he was going to get bathed. <laughs> So bad. Why do they smell so bad? <laughs> I know, so bad. I know, he comes home every day and he's like, hug, and I'm like, shower mm, first. Let me spritz you first. Why? <laughs> I like onions. Yeah. <laughs> Testosterone. Uh, Tessa, yeah. Bad smelling. Bad, yeah, yeah, especially in that growth yeah. spurt that's going on. Oh. Okay, but anyway, anyway, we yeah, digress. So, no, no, no worries. So, but that's, so that's olfactory adaptation. Yeah. And most people can you know, kind of relate to that. Mm-hmm. There's psychological adaptation as well. We are not built to have sustainable emotional experiences. Mm-hmm. And so if we're relying on the emotional experience of happiness to get to that and stay there. We just can't. You can't. You're, you, you, psychologically, we adapt. So we can find kind of a higher sense and a more sustainable sense of well-being by, by shifting our mindset to pursuing things that actually really fulfill us on a psychological level. Right. Uh, con- yeah, looking for contentment, looking for meaning, meaningfulness in, in the things that we do in our life, in the work that we do. And we can train our brain. We can create new neural connections yes. to actually start to see all of the positive things that already exist. The fact that you and I are sitting here, right, it's one temperature outside and a, another temperature in here. Yes. That's a really amazing positive thing. Isn't that cool? Right? Yeah. It's so cool. Oh my God. It's it's amazing. And but it can affect uh, our environment. Yeah. Right? Right. But every day we go through that and don't recognize it. Right. And I'm not saying that. Unless that makes we're us, like too hot. Yeah. And we're like, ugh. That's when we recognize it, right? When something goes wrong. When we're uncomfortable. Yeah. So we can train our brain to start to see all of those things on a more regular basis mm-hmm. and lean more into the positive. And then before you know it, you start to reach these sort of higher levels of psychological well-being. And there's all sorts of amazing benefits that come with that, even outside of the workplace, right? Just for you as an individual, including things like longevity and being ill less and things like that. Not getting that four-week cold. <laughs> right. Yeah. That the kids brought home. Well, yeah. there, there might not be a remedy to yeah. to the illnesses that kids transfer to us. They go to the Petri dishes and then they come back. I really think that they do roll around and, who like, my dog goes out and rolls around and who knows what. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that teenagers do that, too. Yeah. And I don't know what they're doing, but yeah. I'm like, shower yourself before you touch me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, where are you speaking next? Um, so I'm next week, I'm doing a gig in San Jose. Uh, yeah, I'm super pumped about that. Uh, and then I think the week after that, I'm speaking at the VHMA convention down in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. After that, I can't remember. Cool. I'm excited for you. Thanks. So, um, before I ask my last question, um, what is the easiest way for people to find you? Yeah. So, um, online at the website, uh, www.com flourishveterinaryconsulting.com. You have to spell veterinary properly yes. and consulting. Yes. <laughs> that and was a hard time yes. for me. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. I know. I should just change it to FVL. 
Yeah. I don't know. We'll link it in the description f- boxes. Y'all can just click on it. Somebody had flourish.com, so I, can, and I, mm. I can't afford to buy that. Um, yeah, but, that would yeah, be an expensive one. That would be an expensive <laughs> one. So Flourish Veterinary Consulting or just flourishveterinary.com works as well. Okay. Uh, or they can email me at josh at flourishveterinaryconsulting.com. Awesome. on LinkedIn as well. Okay, cool. Um, and again, we'll link all that stuff, but in description awesome. boxes, people can. Awesome. Hit it up there. Rock and roll. Okay, so final question. Yes. What is the one thing business owners can do today to start fostering a better environment in their organization? Awesome question. Uh, So I think every single organization has uh, maybe not formal values, Mm -hmm. but values, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are important to them, things Mm -hmm. that they really value, uh, and behaviors that they want to see, positive behaviors they want to see in the people that they lead. Uh, and there's a really, really great tool called the SBI tool okay. uh, that anybody can use at any point in time. I mean, you can just use it in life in general. You can mm-hmm. use it as a parent or as a friend or whatever, um, even just shopping in the grocery store. So SBI stands for um, specific – no, sorry, situation, behavior, and impact. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I – I thought I was doing a really good job when I was a manager. At the end of every day, I'd walk around the hospital and find every employee and say, hey, thanks for your work today. Mm-hmm. And the first one or two times I did that, I, I think that it had an impact mm-hmm. on them. But after doing that for a year and a half, every single day, psychological adaptation, they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Well, you don't even know what I did today. Right. right? So SBI allows it, you to make it a lot more impactful. Mm-hmm. So situation, hey, Jamie, you know, when I came in and you offered to get me something to drink, behavior, mm-hmm. right? You offer to get me something to drink. Thank you so much. That really made me feel welcome and warm here and uh, really helped calm my nerves. That's SBI in action. Mm-hmm. And any leader can do that. Uh, find three opportunities every day to do that with three different people on your team. And I guarantee you within a week's time, you'll start to feel an actual difference in the culture there. I love that. Cool. So it's called, it's, so it was a SBI? SBI, Situation Behavior Impact. So okay, what cool. was the situation? when, where it happened, whatever. What was the exact behavior that you witnessed? Objectively, don't try and put meaning behind it, Mm -hmm. just what they actually did, Mm -hmm. and then the impact that it had. Whether on you. Whether on you or somebody else or the team or a client, irrelevant. Perfect, that's easy. Yeah. That's really easy. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, appreciate it. So fun. Yeah. Could have done this all day. Well, I can't shut up, so that's No, I loved it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening or watching. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you prefer to listen. If you learned something and found some useful information to apply to your business today, please consider giving us a thumbs up and a review. Until next week, be abundant.